Singular is his name across the landscape of history. More powerful is his name than any other that has ever lived. Though others have shared the syllables of his name, no other in all of history has ever held the power in himself that Jesus Christ held. We are Jesus people and we are Easter people. We are people of the cross and we are people of the empty tomb. And this is why. Because we know where we were. And after he invaded our hearts with the love, mercy, grace, and favor that he has for us, we know who we are now. Amen. The resurrected king resurrected me. And the resurrected king can resurrect you too. This is the beauty of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And on the third day, that first Easter, he cut a pathway into a place that we could not get to. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's where I'm going this morning. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to let you sit down. Man, you guys look good this morning. You guys look so good this morning. I'll just tell you, don't get used to this. Don't, don't get used to this. I am smoking hot. And I am... <laughs> Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I love you so much. God, what a beautiful opportunity to say that you have defeated death. Father, we do it all the time. But on Easter, Father, we funnel every other thing into this moment to declare that what you have accomplished 2,000 years ago in that garden tomb continues to reverberate through the world, through our hearts, through our families, through our churches, and truly throughout eternity, you are victorious. Father, as we open your word this morning, I humbly pray, I humbly pray that what would emerge out of what we're going to talk about would be the victorious work of Jesus on that first Easter morning. If there are any in this space, God, who do not know you, God, I pray that they be so compelled by the good news of what you have done, that there would be no doubt the very best thing they could do this morning is to follow you, to receive you as Lord and Savior. And Father, for those who have been struggling, who have wrestled with parts of their lives, Father, who have come into this place carrying burdens in places of darkness, my Jesus, I plead with you. May everything after this moment stand in direct conflict to what came before this moment. May everything after this morning be a word of hope, leaving behind a word of sorrow. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this place. It is your word, not mine. It is your power and not mine. It is your voice and not mine. And I humbly ask that I would simply be a servant. Give me a mouth to speak what you have for me to speak and give these good people ears to hear what you would have for them to hear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. He is risen. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's the fifth time I've preached since last Sunday morning. Who knows how far I'll go. Put some respect on the name of those old evangelists who preached like seven nights a week for five years straight. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they worked that out, honestly. I'm not built that way. They're built different. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 24. So if you want to turn there this morning, we'll read from Luke chapter 24. But I, I, before, just before we read, <clears throat> I want to begin just by telling you, 
Without the resurrection, everything is just as it seems. Without the resurrection, everything is just as it seems. But because of the resurrection, nothing is the same. I read the story about a denominational leader in Minnesota, a guy named John. And it's a true story. John Ortberg had told it, and he knew the guy, so he, he had gotten this firsthand. But John, the denominational leader, was over a large territory filled up with rural farm areas. And, and so John would have to go out hours and hours away from home base to do things like perform funerals and weddings for small rural towns that didn't have churches. And so he would go out once or twice a month with an undertaker uh, from their home city and they would drive out to um, just wherever they had to go and they would perform an entire ceremony. The funeral ceremony, the undertaker would take care of the body, they would take care of the whole thing in one day. And so on one occasion, this man, John, he was out with the undertaker. They had performed the funeral four or five hours away from home, and they were coming back, and John was just tired, man. And, and, and some of you guys know what that feels like. You're just weary, and, you know, the undertaker was driving the hearse. And so he said, would you be okay if I just took a nap? Like, I'm just beat. And he said, yeah, sure, I'm driving. You go right ahead. And so he said, I know it sounds kind of weird, but could I climb in the back and just stretch out? And the guy said, I don't care. If you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. And so he did. Man, he sacked out, asleep, laid out in the back of that hearse. Well, it wouldn't be a story without a twist. This is back in the days of full service gas station attendants, and that undertaker had to get fuel on the way back home. And so they pulled into the station, and the young man came out, and he asked him what he needed. He said, fill up the tank with gas. And so he started putting gas in the tank, and he could see through the glass in the back of that hearse that there was a body laying in the back of that thing. And he thought, man, this is creepy. This is crazy. There's a dead body in here. I'm pumping this thing with gas. And so the kid was already a little bit freaked out, but that didn't hold a candle to how freaked out he got when John woke up and saw him and knocked on the glass and waved at the kid from behind in the back of that hearse. Hey, the resurrection changes everything. When life comes into a place that you thought death was going to be, you react differently. You are not the same when life shows up. And I'm just here to tell you, the resurrection can change your life just like that kid. Some of y'all need to run an aisle because Jesus showed up and you didn't think he was going to be here. The grave is empty. It is no longer filled up with that person. He has exploded death and he has won victory over everything that had tormented us as a tyrant. I want to tell you, without the resurrection, the world is just as dark as it seems. And without the resurrection, pain is a tyrant who will never be overthrown. And without the resurrection, struggles are never going to get lighter. And without the resurrection, our problems are just the tip of the iceberg. And without the resurrection, the grave is the only real victor. And without the resurrection, addiction is indefinitely in control. And without the resurrection, joy is a temporary condition. Without the resurrection, peace is only achieved through violence. And without the resurrection, life is just a shadow of things that don't truly exist. And so it matters deeply that you hear me say it again this morning. He is risen. See, all that list of things that the world would be without the resurrection, they have been rendered void because Jesus rose from the grave. And so can I just finish the list now? Would you just allow me the next 45 seconds to do that and preach like a rural Pentecostal for just a minute? Because of the resurrection, Light has come into the world, and darkness has not overcome it. 
Because of the resurrection, pain is now a servant and no longer a tyrant. Because of the resurrection, struggles are transferable because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And because of the resurrection, the problems we face are passing away because Jesus has overcome this troubled world. And because of the resurrection, the grave has lost its sting. And because of the resurrection, chains of addiction are being broken every day by the power of his love. And because of the resurrection, we have access to joy unspeakable and full of glory. And because of the resurrection, the violence of the cross absorbed by Jesus has given us access to the peace that surpasses all understanding. And because of the resurrection, clarity has cut through the shadows and life more abundant has been offered to you and to me. The resurrection changes everything. Give him a hand clap of praise for what he's done. Luke 24. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Then I'm going to preach my guts out for the next 40 minutes. Some of y'all going to get saved. Some of y'all going to repent. Holy Spirit's going to convict some of you. And life's going to be different. 24-1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. As I was looking back at this passage, which I've read so many times before. Now, I've talked with several pastors over the last three weeks, and, and you know, Easter and Christmas are two things that we do every year. And so sometimes it's unique trying to come back to a story that you've heard before over and over again that you've preached and taught so many times and find something fresh. And yet it seems that if, if you're willing to sit with the text long enough, God always just speaks. And, and so something I had never seen before in the text, some, a structure sort of emerged out of these 12 verses that got me really excited. And part of that's because I love the Bible and I love the Word of God, but another part of that is because I love grammar. Obviously, all of you share this love with me. Thank you for that. Five times in these 12 verses, the Greek word day is used. Spelled D-E, day. Say day. It's not D-A-Y, it's D-E, day. That word is a conjunction. In grammar, a conjunction is a word that links two separate ideas. It either links two separate sentences, or it can link paragraphs, or it can link 
uh, phrases within the same sentence. And so in our language, and and but are, are sort of uh, conjunctions. They connect things together. So I'll give you an example. Um, I could give you this sentence. I was going to go buy some ice cream, but my car caught on fire. Okay? So the word but in that sentence is a conjunction. It connects the two expressions. But the word day in the Greek does exactly what that English word but does as well. So it doesn't just connect two ideas. It reveals something about the connection of those ideas. So on this side, we have what preceded. I was going to drive to go get some ice cream. But my car caught on fire. The word but and the word day function to serve as a mark point that allows us to understand that what proceeds after that word stands in direct conflict to what preceded that word. You with me? So the car was going to the ice cream parlor to get some good stuff, but it caught on fire, which means the second half of that sentence stands in direct conflict to the first half. The first half of that sentence was a glorious story of ice cream and calories. The second half of that story is a terrible nightmare filled up with insurance claims and 60 months of payments. Five times the word day says that what was no longer is. It tells us that what comes after these words stands in direct conflict to what came before them. And so I'm going to tell you these five things from this text, and I'm excited about them. And you will be too, even though you don't love grammar, because you love Jesus. And that's all that matters in this moment. Amen? First of all, Luke 24, 1, it should be up on the screen in just a second. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, 24-1, we see new creation overtakes the old. New creation overtakes the old. So the first thing the resurrection does, the first thing that the resurrection does, the power of the resurrection, you can go to that first slide if you want to, that's, that's where we'd be. I actually use slides today too, it's very swanky, right? Praise God, look at there, I can do it. The resurrection draws a beautiful line between everything that came before this day and everything that came after this day. See, for roughly 4,000 years of history, from the time that Adam and Eve had sinned in the scriptural narrative, what we see is that the world was flooded and filled up with curse. Death entered the world because mankind rebelled against God's goodwill and said, we want it our way instead. And so God said, if you choose your way, then you get your way. The problem is, is that my way leads to eternal life and your way leads to death. But Adam and Eve decided that this is what they were going to do. They would rebel because they wanted what they wanted. I know none of, nobody in this room ever has told that story about themselves. But for roughly four millennia, the world endured curse. Death was the end. There were a few notable exceptions. Elijah and Elisha saw resurrection. Jesus saw resurrection in his ministry. But generally speaking, even those people who were raised in those instances still died after they had been raised back to new life. They did not stay alive forever. They went back to a grave at some point. Lazarus passed away. He's not still with us. He's not attending First Baptist down the street. But on this day, but on the first day, of the week. See, John's not just, or, or excuse me, Luke, John says it too in, in chapter 20, but Luke's not just saying that this is the first day of a seven-day week. 
He is referencing the first day of a week of new creation. Because Luke knows from reading, studying, writing, and listening that in Genesis 1, the Hebrew narrative of creation begins with saying that on the first day of the week and the second day of the week, God created this and that, and God created on the third, fourth, fifth, and, and then on the sixth day, he created man, and on the seventh day, he rested. And now we have a full week that God has established as a rhythm of life. But at some point, mankind created a week that was filled with brokenness instead of a week filled with creation. So when Luke says, but it was on the first day of the week, we have to look at our word there, our conjunction, because it says that everything that follows after that word but stands in direct opposition to everything that came before it. And I'm here to tell you, on the first day, not just the first day of the week, but the first day of new life, Jesus emerged from the tomb. Nothing is the same now because he restarted a new week. Jesus did not go back to a grave after raising eternally. He now lives, never to see death again, never to taste death again. And that's what's important. It's not that people hadn't come back at some point. It's that they had gone back after that, but not Jesus. Jesus said, I have broken in half a curse that stood in the path of humanity for all of these centuries and millennia, but now there's a new day and a new week and new creation. Now, some of y'all are thinking, well, I'm still going to go to the grave. You might, but if you walk with Jesus, you might taste death for a moment. But I'm here to tell you, you will rise again. You will not stay in that grave. You will not let your body see decay or rot. He promises that if you walk in his power, in his grace, in his forgiveness, and in his lordship, that even if your body tastes death, you will still live forever because it's a new day of a new week in creation. Yes, give him praise. It's no longer Friday, it's Sunday. It's no longer a day of death, it's a day of life. It's no longer a day of curse, it's a day of grace. It's no longer a season of slavery and oppression, crush and defeat, but by the power of Jesus, he has set free everyone who follows him, both to the cross and to the grave. The brokenness of your past is confronted with the wholeness of God's future because of the resurrection. I read that fast, but you need to hear it slow. The brokenness of your past is confronted with the wholeness of God's future because of the resurrection. Because the Friday of where you've been is no match for the Sunday of what he's done. The Friday of where you've been is no match for the Sunday of what he's done because every Friday has a Sunday. Every Friday has a Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, second, moving quick, I got five points. It's forever for me. First of all, new creation overtakes the old. Second, verse two, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. That word and, same Greek word. Even though in English we translate it differently, it's the same Greek word, day. Means that what comes after it stands in direct conflict to what came before it. So look closely. New access opens what was previously sealed. New access. Say the word access. We went to Disney in January, which was a great time to go to Disney. Wasn't super hot. Still a lot of people. But I think that's just always the way it is. One of the things that we did, or we figured out, was that you can pay a little bit extra, and you don't have to wait in all the lines as long. What is it called there? 
fast pass or something fast, whatever it is. It's, it's an access point. Let me just put it that way because that follows my sermon. That's not what Disney calls it. That's what I'm calling it. And you sign up on your phone, and what it does, it says, okay, this ride, you're going to go to this ride in, in one hour from now, and you're going to get to bypass the majority of the line, and you've gained access to a place because we have given you the opportunity to for a small fee, because they're always looking for a small fee that doesn't feel so small by the end of it. But nonetheless, neither here nor there, I'm not complaining. Access is granted to something that other people don't have access to. And so can I tell you? The first time that we got in one of those fast lines, and I was strolling past hundreds of people who were in the slow line, I felt just a little bit guilty. Hey, man, y'all, y'all should have paid the $15. Because we're going to wait for five minutes, and you're going to be in this line for the next 90 Man, I, I, I want to grab one and take them with me. I'm, a, I'm an evangelist. I want to grab you and take you with me. Man, we're going to glory. We're going to the ride. Don't, don't wait in that line, man. Jesus made a way, right, where there was no way. He's a, he's a chain breaker, door opener. That's what he does. And so, but, but I couldn't because they hadn't paid, and they would throw me out of the park. So we had access. Can I tell you, by the fourth day, the only rides I wanted to ride were the ones that I got to walk by everybody who was standing in line, and I'd look at them and smirk a little bit and say, we paid the price, so now we're going on into the, into the ride. Y'all can wait all day if you want to. I'm not going to wait in the rain. It's all right. I'm going to go get a funnel cake while y'all still standing here in just a little while. That, that's, that's the beauty of what happens when you realize that you have access. See, access has been given to us through Jesus, but most of us don't realize the access we've been given. And so we're very much trepidatious about what we do. We're putting our toe in the water. We're saying, I don't know, Jesus, did he do this? Did he really forgive me? Did he really, is there really any, no condemnation in him? Like, is it really going to work out in my life because of him? Can I just tell you, the longer you walk in that access, the less you get nervous about using it, and the more you want to boldly step into what God has actually provided for you. They got there that day to the tomb, and the stone was rolled away, and what they thought was going to be sealed, what they thought they could not get into without help, what they thought they could not access, God said, I have rolled away everything that stood in your way, and now you're going to go see where life was instead of where death was. That's not all, though. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, there's two other things that take place. In the temple, the most holy place where the presence of God sat, where the resting presence of God was with the Ark of the Covenant, was called the Holy of Holies. There was a thick, thick veil that separated that area of the temple from every other area in the temple because it was a sacred space and they even said that if a priest entered there with sin in his heart he dropped dead they had bells on their clothes I think when they fell down you had to drag them out if, if they if they died in that space because the glory of God was so powerful in that space now, now here's the beauty of it when Jesus died on the cross now in Matthew 27 it sort of mashes up the crucifixion and the resurrection in that part of the chapter and we're not sure if it's exactly when the cross took place when he died or when he rose from the grave but two things took place in Jerusalem first of all that veil that had separated us from the very presence of the creator who loved us was ripped in half from top to bottom no one could have ripped that veil except God himself but he just said we're done with this and I'm finished with this I'm not going to be separate from any of my people anymore I want them to come into my presence I want them to sense my anointing I want them to know the purpose that I have for them I want them to have the healing and the forgiveness and the grace and the glory and the mercy that I have wanted to pour out over them for all of these centuries and now because of what my son did I can finally rip this cloth in half so everybody can come in and and so I can get out but that's not all I'm talking like an auctioneer but y'all gonna hang with me for just a few more minutes he said the graves around Jerusalem opened up and people emerged this is crazy and creepy preachers don't preach this they don't like this because they can't understand it I don't care if I understand it or not I love it it's like the walking dead just the first episode, right? 
The graves opened up around Jerusalem. Matthew 27 said people started walking around the city that folk hadn't seen in years. Hey, that's, that's Uncle Eli. Uncle Eli died 35 years ago. And now he's here for Easter dinner? We didn't prepare a place for him at the table. When Jesus came in to the tomb and rose from the grave, it wasn't just Jesus who rose from the grave. It was death itself that was defeated and all around him a ripple effect took place. The power of the resurrection said, anywhere death is close to me, it's not going to be able to stand up against what I have just accomplished. He has done it for you and for me and I'm just here to tell you, man, there are graves in your heart. There are graves in your life. There's a row of tombstones in your past and you think those are the broken places that I can never get back to. Those are the things I can never recover and I'm just here to tell you the resurrection of Jesus means that all those tombs will explode with life where you thought there was only death because Jesus is the power of the resurrection and where his life comes in, death cannot stand. You have been given access, access to the presence of God, access to the power of resurrection and access to see life in places that used to be filled up with death. (laughs) There's this Andy Squire song, I'll finish this point with this. And the bridge of that song is called Cherry Blossoms. It's a beautiful song. But the bridge of that song goes this way. He says, I'm not going to give in to this mortal frustration. And I'm not going to give death any standing ovation. I will lift my soul, God, with no hesitation. Because between you and me, Lord, there is no separation. Jesus rolled away the stone broke the seal, threw the guards away so that they could walk directly in thinking it was a place of death but finding out that it's a place of life. You have access. You have access to God. You have access to mercy. You have access to hope. You have access to forgiveness because of what Jesus did on that first Easter morning. The Friday of your confinement has given way to the Sunday of his openness. The Friday of your confinement has given way to the Sunday of his openness. Third, verse five. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. It says, and as they were frightened. That word and, same thing, same thing. So it means that what comes after this statement stands in direct conflict or opposition to what came before this statement. And so it says, and as they were frightened. But verse 5 has context. And verse 5's context is verse 4. So I want you to see something. In verse 4, the women come to the tomb, and the Bible says that they were perplexed. Say the word perplexed. If you said it in Greek, it would be the word aporeo. Aporeo. Which means to be without resources, to have no context for where you are, to be unprepared or inadequately outfitted for the situation that you were in. And it means to have no idea what to do because of it. Essentially, it means this. It means that you didn't bring the right stuff, and so now you're confused as to how you're going to move forward. They were perplexed. We find out, though, through the angel's questions, the angel looks at him and says, why have you come seeking the living among the dead? And this is a backhanded way of the angels getting at what's in the heart of these women. I want you to see, this is really beautiful, and it's really interesting, because I think it exposes some things in us too. I don't believe that the women were perplexed because Jesus wasn't in the tomb. 
And I don't believe the women were perplexed because he'd been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. They might not have expected that, but it was their expectations that left them perplexed, not the reality that was in front of them. It was because they'd come to the tomb that morning looking for death instead of looking for life. That's why they were perplexed. Their expectations were not to find the stone rolled away. Their expectations were not that this was the first day of a new creation. Their expectations were not to see that the corpse of Jesus was no longer lying in that grave. And listen closely now. Because they had come to the tomb that morning looking for what they expected instead of what was promised, they found themselves confused and didn't know what to do. Listen to that statement. Because they came to the tomb that morning looking for what they expected instead of what was promised. Can I just ask you the question? Are you looking for what's expected or what's promised? Are you looking for what God said in his word? Or are you looking for what you expect because of what you've seen in the world? See, the reason that we walk perplexed sometimes and the reason we struggle with doubt sometimes and the reason we wrestle with our faith sometimes and the reason that we feel inadequately prepared sometimes for the situations that we find ourselves in is not because God's not capable of doing the things that we need him to do. It's actually because we've walked up expecting him to do nothing like what he said he'd do and instead we find ourselves looking for what he said he would do the opposite of. Jesus told them, we talked about this Friday night, the angel said, remember he told you? He told you. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be crucified. But then he told you that on the third day he would rise. And, but what do they do? Ah, oh, God help me. What do they do? They bring burial spices on the third day because they don't expect to find a risen Savior. They expect to find a dead Messiah. Hey, if you've made the trip to anoint something dead, you made the wrong trip. It's about time the church stopped anointing dead things. It's about time we stop bringing spices to decorate corpses and instead we bring praise and worship and honor to celebrate a risen king. It's about time. They'd come expecting one reality, but then they were confronted with a completely different reality. They'd come expecting Friday to be the standard of truth, but what they found was a Sunday standing directly in their path. Hey, Friday's gone. Can I just, if you haven't heard yet, I've said it over and over again. <laughs> I'll say it again. Friday's gone. Death is no longer victorious. It has been defeated. And so stop expecting death in places where Jesus said there's supposed to be life. Stop bringing your offerings for dead things and saying, hey, we just want to see the corpse. And God says, well, he ain't here. You came looking in the wrong place. Don't come in the church looking for dead things. Because you know what? You're, you're bound to bring something with you. I don't want anything dead in here. I want to see it raised when it walks in so we can celebrate what Jesus is capable of doing. That's what Easter's about, man. We're confused with our faith and we're losing ground in our ability to articulate the gospel not because it's unclear, but because we're so consumed with things passing away and dying and we're celebrating things that God said we should look at and think that's not right. 
Sometimes we've got to stand in the face of things that don't look right and say, that's not real because God said something different. And I know it looks like reality in front of my face, but that's not real because God said something else. And I'm going to trust more what he said than what I see. I cannot allow myself to get back into the habit that I once walked in, which was to celebrate and honor things that had passed away instead of reaching and striving for that which is before me, for that which is coming back to life, for harvests which are being produced, for joy that is unspeakable even before I have felt it or experienced it. God said, you don't come here looking for the living among the dead. You brought the wrong stuff. Don't bring your spices for a corpse. You bring your praise for a king. I'm going to drill down on this just for a minute more. That's just a warning. So my daughter, wherever she is, <laughs> when she was uh, six, seven years old, I think, she wanted a horse. So she, when she said she wanted a horse, though, she didn't just want to ride a horse. She wanted the stables, the farm, the land. She was convinced that her grandfather was going to work that land to keep the horse up. So essentially all that she had, responsibility-wise, was if she got a wild hair and wanted to go ride the horse, everything's taken care of, man. They've washed it, they've groomed it, they've saddled it for me. I just come in, get on, and ride away. And so I looked at her. I said, sweetie, we weren't raised that way. Like, I, I ain't got horse money. Like, you, you need to marry well if you want a thoroughbred because like, I didn't grow up that way. You can ask him if I'm lying, but most of the time, the little plastic horse outside of Kmart, I couldn't even ride that thing. We didn't have the quarter to put in it when I was a kid, all right? If, even if we did, they said it was a waste of money. Still working through some of those childhood wounds. Just walk with me through the therapy, if you would. She wanted all that, and in her mind it was possible. But kids do this all the time, don't they? Kids think, I'm going to space tomorrow. Well, you're seven. How are you going to get there? You ain't got a job. You ain't got a suit. You ain't got a ship. Like, what are you going to do? It's like, yeah, I'll figure it out. This summer we're building a treehouse. It's going to span the forest. It's going to look like indoor. Ewoks going to be running in and out of it, man. And we're going to have the greatest time. Power, water, sewer, game systems. And we're going to hang out all summer long. Like, who's going to build it? Like, here's what happens. When kids bring their imaginations to us, we look at them and say, you know, that's cute. I'm so glad you've got a great imagination. And then in the back of our mind, we think, that'll never happen. You know why? Because we, as grown-ups, have adopted an intimate relationship with the idea of impossibility. And that mindset colors almost everything that we do and see and plan for. And I just wonder if it's any reason that Jesus says, if you want to own the kingdom, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to become like a child. 
you got to stop bringing burial spices to a tomb and instead bring a picnic lunch because you might just be in a garden with a Savior who's already risen. See, I think kids get it because they're not worried about the how. They just get the vision and they think it's got to happen. Can I tell you, we need more adults and grown-ups in the church who believe that God is not going to force us to worry about the why or the how all the time. He just says, if I said it's true, then it's true. And even if you haven't seen it yet, I'll figure out the details. You just keep walking the path and I'll make sure that the impossible does not limit your life because I have given you unlimited potential by the power of the spirit of resurrection inside of you and I'm tired of us living into this deadness to say no 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 we have to be practical about everything man forget practical I'm tired of practical I want resurrection I want life I want empty tombs I want children prophesying I want to see the things that God told me I would see. And just because I haven't seen them doesn't mean I'm going to give up the kind of hope that my children have that we're going to buy a farm and a horse. We're not buying a farm and a horse. But I believe God can do everything he said he can. We're prepared for what we've seen, but we struggle to be prepared for what has actually been given to us. I'll read you one line from Frederick Buechner and I'll move on to the next point. Almost done. Buechner says people are prepared for everything except for the fact that beyond the darkness of their blindness, there is a great light. And at the end of this statement, he says this. I love this statement. He says, people are prepared for the potluck supper at First Presbyterian, but they're not ready for the marriage supper of the lamb. (laughs) See, we're good with the macaroni and the green beans, but we don't even know what to make of the fact that Jesus is going to have a table that spans millions of miles long that everybody who loves him is going to sit at and we're going to feast and eat and enjoy and love and laugh and hear the stories of creation. See, I think we're ready for the things that we expect, but man, we are very much unprepared for the things that he's promised. But Friday is given away to Sunday because every Friday has a Sunday. Every Friday has a Sunday. The Friday of what had always been was giving way to the Sunday of what could be. Second to last, verse 10. Skip down to verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. The other women with them as well who told these things to the apostles. I love this. The word now is our Greek word day. The word now is the same word. We translate it differently in English, but it's the same Greek word. It means what? You're going to know this grammar before you, I mean, you might not know the gospel, but you're going to get the grammar right. Amen? That word, that's funny. Y'all laugh. It's Easter. I'm going to have to tell another joke. It means that what comes after that word stands in direct opposition to what came before it. Changes everything. So now look at this. Now it was Mary and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who told these things to the apostles. Social conditions of women in the first century have been radically altered from their condition prior to the oppression, exile, and enslavement that Israel had experienced for the 600 years leading up to Jesus' life. Historically speaking, Israel had gone through just a beating. Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, 
Greece split into four quadrants and continued to rule over Israel. They had a brief period of independence in the Hasmonean dynasty, and then Rome came along, sacked the nation, and overtook them. They either took them away into exile, like early on they did, or they just levied tribute and taxes on them so that they could support the empire at these great burdensome rates. And so this is what happened. Before all of that, women were treated very well in the Hebrew culture. That's what we understand. They were not treated as second-class citizens. They were treated and cherished and valued. But it seems that Hebrew culture had given way, in particular, to Hellenization when Greece took over, to treating women in the kind of way that Roman Greece treated them. And so by the time of Jesus' life, women in Israel, and I've got some stuff I could read you. One, one passage in the Talmud says that women in the first century are swathed like mourners, and they are isolated from people and shut up in prison. That's the first century condition of women. And so Jesus, long before the cross and the tomb, is already a revolutionary. If you think for a second, Jesus is oppressing or marginalizing the female gender, then you need to reread the New Testament. Jesus valued, saw the image of God in them, Gave them voice. There's a passage in Luke. You remember the first time Jesus was at Mary and Martha's house in Bethany? He, he, he has Martha frittering around trying to clean house and get everything ready for him. But Mary is sitting at his feet. The, the scripture says she's sitting at his feet listening to his teaching. That language in the Greek is the exact same language that is used for a disciple sitting at the feet of their rabbi. She is not just some romanticized, doe-eyed, paparazzi-looking kind of girl who just loves Jesus. Oh, you're so, you're so wonderful. Your hair is so long. Like, that is not who Mary is in the least. I mean, I like that. That's all right. There's the joke I was looking for earlier. She's sitting there to learn like the disciples are learning, and Jesus is not turning her away. He's saying, come closer, hear my words, receive my kingdom. This is how Jesus treated women, but this is how Jesus treated outcasts. Jesus saw the alien and the foreigner and the exile, and he said, I want to be near you. I want to bring you into places where you can be healed. He goes to the sick and brings healing to their bodies. He touches the leper. He shields the woman caught in adultery from the stones by his words and his discussion with the men behind her. He does for women what most people were not doing in the first century. So is it any wonder, is it any wonder that in this verse we see the word day to say prior to this moment, listen, women could not testify in court. In legal settings, they were considered the same as children or mutes. Legally, they had no voice. And so the first people at the tomb that morning were the Marys. And Jesus allows them to be the ones who absorb the truth of the resurrection. Now listen to me closely. That means that the most important single piece of current events in the history of the world was not carried by evangelists, rabbis, men, politicians, news services, CNN, or Fox. It was carried by a group of women who the first century considered to be subservient to every other person on the planet. Jesus says, because I have risen, you have a message. I'm loosing the tongues of those who have been oppressed and who have been marginalized. Because of my Sunday, your tongues have been untied and you have something to say that has validity and power. And I'm here to tell you, I want you to hear this. I don't even know how I said it. New revelation sets loose, tied up tongues. And the Friday of all those who have been silenced has given way to the Sunday 
of those with a testimony. <laughs> we talked last Sunday night. I told you, you need to run your mouth about God. You do it about other things, I'm not responsible. We never stop running our mouth about who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished. And I love the fact, this, this, this lines up, I'm excited about this, and I don't know if you are or not, you're thinking about lunch, and that's okay, but I'm gonna get excited for just a few more minutes, and y'all just gonna have to bleed off my excitement, and that's okay. I'm like a brake line, it's all stacked up, except it just can't stop, I gotta keep going. In Acts chapter two, verses 17 and 18, Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel, in Joel chapter two. It says, in the last days it shall be, God declares. Look, look what he says immediately, gives us context. He says, after a certain point, it's gonna be the last days. Can I tell you? It's the first day of a new week of creation. It's the last days. I know it might seem like a long time, but it's still the last days. It is still the time after the time when Jesus carved history in half. And whether you believe that or not, you date your calendar according to what Jesus did, not according to what Rome or Greece did. So you are falling prey to a classic Christian idea to say that his life marks us more than you ever dreamed it could. That frustrates you when you've got to write AD or when you write 2022 because we're dating ourselves based on the Lord Jesus Christ, not sun cycles or universe things. He says, I am the reason we turn on the calendar. It's not why I'm talking about it. I'm just telling you in the last days it shall be. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Those kids that can't seem to get off YouTube, who can't follow instructions, who you think are a worthless generation, some of y'all, I hope you don't, but maybe you do. They're gonna see visions. And our old men, those who we thought were over the hill, too far gone, didn't have anything left to say, they're gonna dream dreams again. And he says then, even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. All you who've been silenced by a long string of Fridays, by a litany of death moments and disenfranchisements, to you a voice has been given because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not silent in this world. And if we are, it's not because of Jesus, it's because of us. He has opened our mouths and set loose our tongues and given us a testimony. The Friday of our silence has given way to the Sunday of his volume. It is time that we absorb the reality of the resurrection and stop being worried about the world, what the world is saying. Can I tell you, the world's saying a lot of crazy things around us. We might as well say some things that are competitive in their craziness. And I'm okay with making sure that what I say to compete with that crazy is that Jesus has risen from the grave and that nothing is the same and that all death has passed away and that I will see him with my eyes because the grave has been defeated. Finally, verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we got our word one more time in this text, but, but Peter rose and ran. Last time I'm going to say it. Word stands here to say that everything coming after it stands in direct conflict and opposition with what came before it. But Peter rose and ran. I won't go through the whole thing, but Peter's story is so powerful in its totality. 
the one who told Jesus that he would never forsake him, never leave him. Peter looked at Jesus in the eyes and said, when everybody else leaves you, I'm staying. And so, after he'd cut some guy's ear off and Jesus had to heal him, it seems that Peter floated away with the rest of the disciples from the garden that evening. The Bible says that he followed along behind the crowd, not in the crowd, not standing up for the Savior, not standing there saying, I'll take the beating along with him, but at a safe distance so they didn't know he was there. This is Peter. Three times that evening of the trumped-up trials and kangaroo courts that Jesus went through, three times people looked at Peter and said, hey, you traveled with him. You were one of his disciples, weren't you? We know you. Weren't you with the one that's on trial? And three times Peter said, nope, wasn't me. Including a young girl who looked at Peter and said, I recognize you. And Peter, a burly fisherman, with all of his bluster, looks at her and he curses and he says, it wasn't me. You don't see me. I was not there. I don't know this man. That Peter. See, the beauty of this text is that it says, it doesn't say, Just Peter, it says, but Peter. See, because everything that came before, everything that came on that side of Peter's life, the rejection of Jesus, the denial of knowing him, the breaking of his promise, everything came on that side of this word day. But now on the other side, what preceded this word stands in direct conflict to what proceeds forward because the women's tale has awakened something in Peter. I want you to hear me. Look at verse 11. I think this is very interesting. But these words seemed to the disciples an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Don't miss this. That word for idle tales, that's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It's a unique word. And it, in the old lexicon, there's an expression used to describe these idle tales, and they are incredible stories. It's fascinating. So, In our culture and in our language, these would be fish stories. Anybody ever told a fish story? Got one hand. Two hands? Yeah, two hands. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being honest. I'm not asking you to repent and come to the altar. I'm just asking if you've ever lied about the size of the fish you caught. We call them fish stories apparently because either fishing breeds liars or liars just go into fishing as a general rule. But it's the embellishment of a story. You ever meet somebody who's done so many things in their life, you think you've got to be like 232 years old to have done all of those things. And so you just sort of switch off. You're like, all right, I've I've heard all I can hear, man. This is how they were receiving the women's testimony at first. Idle tales. Thanks for trying to cheer us up, but we know what happened. We saw what happened on Friday. Thanks for trying to give us some encouragement, but we saw the cross. We watched from a distance when they drove the spear into his side. We saw the blood pouring out of his hands, his head, his side, and his feet, his back beaten and marred and bloody. We saw it. So thanks for trying to help. But that's just a fish story, ladies. Why don't you go on and figure out what else you're going to do next because we just want to sit here and mourn. How amazing is it, though, that even after Peter looks at those women and says, yeah, that's a fish story. Good job on trying, but it won't work. Even after that, look at verse 12, something about that story took root inside of his spirit. And even though he said, I can't really believe that, 
He also said, I really want to believe that. And so instead of Peter remaining seated and stagnant, the Bible says that he rose and he ran. See, I don't believe you have to understand all of the science of the resurrection, and I don't even believe you have to understand all of the spiritual reality of the resurrection for it to start to take root in your soul. I think that there's something in us that longs for the idea that maybe death can be defeated, and if you can get just a sliver inside of you, then you'll start to investigate what might have happened. See, you'll find yourself walking to that tomb just to see if maybe, at the outside chance, something of it could possibly be true. And I'm here to tell you, if you'll start to pull that string, what you'll find out is it will lead you into a place where the reality of the empty grave will change your heart, your mind, and your life. Because the truth of the matter is, new hope raises old disappointments. New hope raises old disappointments. The Friday of Peter's disappointment had been confronted by the Sunday of the women's story. A story so outlandish that he had to believe it. Frederick Buechner, again, I know I quote him a lot, but I love the way he writes. He says that the gospel is the story that's too good not to be true. It's the story that we hear and we think, man, if only it was, everything would be different. And can I tell you, Peter realized it's worth rising and running to see if it actually is. And I'm not asking you to understand everything. I'm just wondering this morning if in your tiredness and your stagnancy, if in your seated position emotionally, spiritually, mentally, I'm just wondering if maybe you'd have the courage to let a little bit of this get inside of you. I'm not asking you to believe everything. I'm not asking you to buy into everything. I'm just telling you that if it's actually true, then everything's different. Nothing's the same. Easter reminds us that maybe life isn't what we thought it was. And that kind of hope can raise up old disappointments in your life. Whoever's playing, would they please come? Isaiah, not Sue, I'm not sure. Some of you have been hiding in your Fridays, sitting in your Fridays, stagnant in a place of despair, doubt, or hate. Or pride. I'm just here on Easter Sunday maybe to try to let you know what's actually happening. My great hope is that it would stir something in you. So here's what I know about what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. I have said a lot of words this morning. Starting earlier than this service. But my words are only my attempt at being faithful to what God has called me to do. See, what's happening in you right now has nothing to do with my words. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. See, some of you are thinking to yourselves, man, wouldn't it be nice if I could leave Friday behind? And you're struggling to believe it, but can I tell you, if you're asking the question, then the Spirit of God has already stepped into the situation. The Friday that you walked in here with, Fridays of loss, Fridays of abuse, Fridays of wounds, Fridays of divorce, Fridays of addiction, Fridays of your past, Fridays of words poorly chosen, Fridays of struggle, Fridays of depression, Fridays of, you know, they stack up, don't they? You can put a whole stack of Fridays up 
and say, this is what I'm facing and this is what I'm dealing with. And that's why I wanted you to know, that's why I came here on Easter to tell you that every single Friday has a Sunday because Jesus rose from the grave. And so everything that you've ever dealt with and every struggle that you've ever encountered and every pain that you've ever felt and every wound that has ever gashed you and every betrayal that has ever marked your life, I'm here to tell you that if you stack every one of those Fridays up and you compare it with the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection, everything that you brought to the table doesn't hold a candle, isn't a drop in the cup, doesn't even compare to the life that he has provided for you. There's a new day of the week. Would you stand with me? I'll say this while you're standing and I'm going to pray. There's a new day of the week because of Jesus. Now listen, so you can leave behind what's old. There's open access to God through Jesus so you don't have to walk alone. There's new life in Jesus so you can start seeking what's alive. There's new joy in knowing Jesus so you can have good things to say. And there's new hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. So right now, you can get up and start following the Savior. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. So I'm just, it's very simple, not gonna hold you. I'm gonna ask you the question. Two questions I'm gonna ask. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. This is your moment, you and God. So you've been pushing aside the voice of the Holy Spirit for the last 20 or 30 minutes. Don't push it aside anymore. If he's whispering, this is your moment to respond to him. If you've had a stack of Fridays and you want to experience the Sunday of hope and life, again, this is between you and God, but I'm just asking you. Would you slip your hand up and put it back down? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Several in the house. I want you to hold on to that. Now, there's some of you who have received Jesus as your Savior. This morning, I'm asking you. Do you want a new Sunday? Because I think even after you've received him, it's not that you're going to hell. It's not that you're lost. Man, it's just that life seems to have beaten you in half. Brokenness, betrayal, difficulty, struggle. Some of you need a Sunday. Some of you need a resurrection. Some of you need the truth of what he did to be applied to the brokenness of what you brought in here. I wanna pray for you too. So, if that's you, would you slip your hand up, put it back down? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for your honesty. I'm gonna pray over you, and here's, here's what we do. This is what this looks like. To get rid of the Fridays and own the Sunday, you surrender the Fridays, and then you are gifted the Sunday. You open your hand of what came before, and you allow Jesus to pour into you what he has done for you. That sounds weird, but all that looks like is this. God, I need your help. 
I don't want my past to define me. I want your future to define me. Will you forgive me? Will you lead me? Will you open my heart to your love so that I can be new? That's all. So I'm going to pray over you, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell him that in your words, or you can use the words I just told you. But I'm here to tell you, your Friday has a Sunday, because every Friday has a Sunday, because Jesus has risen from the grave. Precious Heavenly Father, I speak over this congregation so beautiful, so lovely, so wonderful. And I am privileged to stand here, I'm privileged to preach, I'm privileged to be your son. And Father, so many hands were raised around this room, both those looking to know you in a new Sunday and in a first Sunday. And so in Jesus' name, I pray right now that your spirit would do the work that we cannot do. And I ask, Father, that you give them the courage to simply say, Lord, I give you my life. I leave my past behind. And I follow your voice, your leading, your word, because I want to walk in the Sunday that you have given to me. This is what Easter is about. It's about new life. It's about new hope. It's about a new voice and a new message. It's about new access and new joy. My Savior, as I close this Easter service, and Father, as we get ready to enjoy time with families and hide and hunt eggs and watch children laugh, and as we're about to gather around tables, God, I pray that not a single person would walk out of this space with a Friday that they should have left on this Sunday. May they lay it down and walk away from it forever. The hurt, the difficulty, the struggle, the addiction, the brokenness, the sorrow, the stress. May we leave Fridays in the past and walk fully in the joy of your Sunday, your resurrection day. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Thank you, friends. I love you guys. Bless you. I'm asking you to have the best Easter afternoon and evening. Hey.